celebrity Let your weary mind be free And someone kind of famous who you can't see It's time for sleeping with celebrity Hello, sleepyheads. Welcome to Sleeping with Celebrities. I'm John Moe. I'm glad you're here. If you're unfamiliar with me, that's okay. I am a journalist and interviewer. I've made a living having fascinating conversations with with people who you might have heard of, people in the public sphere, comedians, authors, musicians, actors, celebrities. And now I'm trying something new. I'm having my guests step out of the limelight and into the nightlight. In other words, guests on this show are here to help put you to sleep. They're not bringing their A game. They're bringing their Z game. Are you comfortable? Okay. Well, go ahead and find a a good relaxing position. Just take your time, listen to your body, feel it sink in to where it needs to sink. And while you do that, I'm going to tell you about our guest for this episode. And that's Lulu Miller. Lulu, you make other sound shows, correct? I do. I make I make other sound shows. That's that's what I list on my resume. Sound show maker. Um, I am the co-host of Radio Lab. I just created a kids spinoff that's all about nature called Terrestrials, um, and I'm trying to remove the usual pep and potentially screechy dorkiness and enthusiasm with which I speak in the name of a cozy sleep. So I will, I'll try to keep it mellow, but I am uh, speaking against my natural cadences here, but I'll try. (laughs) Lulu's going to reveal what she wants to talk about in just a moment. But first, a word about another show on the Maximum Fun Network. Sleepyheads, I wish to tell you about another audio program which is available here on the Maximum Fun Network. Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. It's your guide to all the weird and bad and hilarious and terrifying ways that people have tried to fix the human body over the millennia. Plus, they investigate the latest wellness fads to see which ones will actually injure you, which ones will just sap all your money. It's hosted by a real-life married couple, Dr. Sidney McElroy, a passionate, empathetic physician who provides medical history in a clear, concise style that makes even the most complex medical concepts accessible to anyone, and Justin McElroy, whose job it is to point out when a word Sidney says sounds vaguely like the word fart. Medicine is at the forefront of so many of our minds these days. Shouldn't it be at the forefront of your ears, too? And that didn't make sense, but Sawbones will, every Tuesday, 
on Maximum Fun or wherever podcasts are. And Lulu, I understand that your topic today has been tested in the field, in the laboratory, the audio lab, if mm-hmm. one might say, of your mm-hmm. own home, mm-hmm. and that our listeners should be in, in good hands with you, good good footy pajamas with you. What is it that you want to talk about, and why are you confident that it's not going to make someone sit up and get excited? Yeah. So I, there are many topics which have been proven historically to bore people uh, when they come out of my mouth. But this one, I mentioned that I was doing this program and I texted my wife. I said, what should I talk about that, that just might put people to sleep? And she actually fired back with a, a litany of ideas, but, but settled on the top one being, as she puts it, how your blue isn't other people's blue and this bothers you so, so much. And then she added like that I even have the possi- the the ability to bore children, scientists, like all everyone by the way that I get into this can can get bored and, and put to sleep. Well, I am I'm so incredibly excited to hear about this, as you can tell. But I'd like to start with a couple of questions about sleep for you, Lulu Miller. Great. What's the best night of sleep you've ever had? Side of the Potomac River, approximately, it was October 2011, I think. And my then girlfriend, now wife, worked near this uh, this strange, she worked in a, in a strange place in Maryland. And one night on a Sunday, she was like, there's this really pretty spot by the river. Do you want to just go camp there? And it was the end of the day. It was a Sunday. And she brought like a potato and some tinfoil and some blankets. And we just slept by this ugly spot but like through her eyes it was really beautiful and we didn't even pitch a tent we just slept on a blanket and we made a fire and like roasted this little potato and um I fell asleep like looking at the stars next to this human that I really was falling hard in love with and and just like trusted the world and trusted my path and boom the grass was near the stars were near the the river was near and fell asleep very happy and very deeply Mm. What kind of potato was it? I believe it was like your classic russet, um, likely not scrubbed or washed before ingested. Mm. Salted? I don't, I think we had some like vague string cheese. I think no salt, but like car cheese, car cheese. (laughs) Car cheese? I think the main flavoring was was smoke and car cheese. Car cheese, yeah. What about bats? Okay, so now we're shifting into the topic at hand. So get cozy because we are going back to 1974 Mm. to a somewhat obscure 
journal of uh, philosophy called um, The Philosophical Review, where there was a article published by philosopher Thomas Nagel called What Is It Like to Be a Bat? And in this philosophical treatise, he makes the case that imagine as much as you want your way into what it is like to be a bat and experience the world using echolocation, the process of sending sounds out into the world and understanding where you are oriented in space by how they bounce back and are encoded by your brain. Mm. That as imagine it as much as you want, research it as much as you want, you can never truly know what it's like to be a bat because our conscious experiences are all inherently subjective. Therefore, not only do you not know what it's like to be a bat, you can never truly what it, know what it's like to be another human. Therefore, oh, 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 oh s- slow down. Slow, slow. Okay, 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 oh, okay. Oh, okay. I want to think about your opening proposition of imagining what it's like to be a bat. And I know you're going to get to the idea that I can't be a bat. Um, But I wonder about the echolocation, if that would be similar to just shouting. Now, Mm. I don't want to disturb anyone by making or even talking too much about loud sounds at this precious moment. But yes, shouting could work. What it's more similar to would be sending out an even shorter, more kind of isolated sound, much like a click, like you can choose to take this out, but I've heard it described as sort of um, as though you're licking peanut butter off the top of your mouth is a good way to make the sound. So sort of like a rapid fire little sound pellets. A little clicking sound. Yeah. On the television show Daredevil, the 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 superhero lawyer he's blind and he uses echolocation you know i've never seen daredevil but i have spoken to a real man who's blind and a few other people who are blind who who use echolocation very seriously in their lives either by clicking or by tapping their cane on surfaces um, to get that nice sort of precision sound. Um, and it is something that some folks who are blind do use to help them be oriented in space. And also, I've talked to some neurologists who have looked at people who use clicks and echolocation as a way to orient in space, who have found uh, growth and activity in the some of the areas associated in the brain with vision. Can you repeat the echolocation sound that you presented to us, the clicks? But of course, here we go. Would you like to try, John? Uh... That's pretty good. 
And of course, I mean, if we're in this world and we care, bats aren't the only ones who use it. Dolphins, phenomenal echolocators, all those clicks they're testing out. You know, can they, can they, are there obstructions in front of them? If there are, that's going to come back. The click's going to come back. The echo's going to come back sooner. Um, you really can, if you try it out in your life, you, you, even a sort of amateur can at least get some pretty intuitive rudimentary data about where they are in space. Is it a big echoey room and one tight with furniture and rugs? Um, Are you out in a dense forest? Are you out in an open field? I think even someone not trained in this would be able to get more than they might expect. Is there low visibility in the ocean? And is that why dolphins use echolocation? My guess would be that eyes that evolved underwater might be able to see more but i would guess that yes it's if they have it there's some reason they need it so maybe it's about low visibility maybe it's about certain depths not getting enough light i listened to your program terrestrials which is about um interesting things that happen on the earth with the residents of it Mm I don't know much about visibility in the ocean, but I can say from personal experience that there is low visibility underwater in lakes. Mm. I live in Minnesota, the land of 10,000 lakes, and I'll often swim in some of them. Mm -hmm. I took my daughter and a group of her friends to the lake one day in the summer and they started playing Marco Polo. Mm. At one point, while playing Marco Polo with my daughter and her friends, I went underwater and opened my eyes, and it was hard to see anything more than two feet away. Mm-hmm. It was murky. I didn't like the feel of the lake water on my eyeballs. Every time I see a whale or a dolphin, I wonder whether or not they can close their eyes. And so I'm wondering if this is something, Lulu, Mm -hmm. that you can answer. Do you know if dolphins have eyelids? I'm going to quietly Google the... Okay, we'll wait here. In my animal, all-knowing animal expertise, um, okay, would you like to know that not only do they have eyelids, they have tear glands. Oh. Suggesting dolphins can cry. (laughs) As I'm guessing Lisa Frank always surmised. So we now can think about how we can do echolocation, but we probably don't know what it's like to have all the other parts of a bat's life. The clumping in caves, the... uh, The nighttime joy, right? You know, one time um, when I was younger, we, we... my family 
co-owned a small cabin on a small lake. Hmm. And Lulu, what we would do at night is we'd go out on the rowboat with, with a big piece of paper and we'd tear off little chunks of the paper and fold them into looking like moths. Okay. Then we'd throw the, the moth paper into the air and what would happen then is a bat would come and eat it. Were we not in our sleeping show, I would have made a much more enthusiastic noise, but really? Yeah. He spat it out. Would that truly work, or are you spinning a yarn? You know, memory is, is a funny thing. I remember this happening. I would also be very charmed if anybody had told me about this and it had not happened to me. I'm forever charmed by this image. But I remember it either happening or it being a very convincing illusion perpetrated by my older siblings. (laughs) Permission to share a nocturne image? Sleepyheads, I want to take just a moment to tell you about another podcast that is available here on the Maximum Fun Network. It's called Tiny Victories, and it's a 15-minute podcast hosted by writers and comedians Laura House and Annabelle Gerwich. Laura and Annabelle celebrate the minor achievements and fleeting joys of their listeners who call into the show as well as their own achievements and joys. What are tiny victories? Well, they're those little things that bring joy, satisfaction, or comfort to your life. Things like learning the etymology of the word gossip, or a stranger that does something that brightens your day. New episodes drop every Monday, right here on Maximum Fun. Permission to share a nocturne image? Yes. Never have I ever rode out in a nighttime rowboat and tossed paper moths into the sky and caught bat, lured bats. But at summer camp, I one time went caving and we went with the counselors deep, deep, deep into the back of a cave. And then she told us to turn off our headlamps. And then she removed from her pocket a sleeve of wintergreen lifesavers, distributed them to all the campers, and on the count of three instructed that we chew. And do you know what happened? I think I do. I want to hear you say it, though. Green. Green sparks. It was so cool. That does sound cool. <laughs> have you ever stayed at a cabin on a lake? I have. It It is where I would always like to be. It may have technically been a pond, okay. but, a, but, but a not very buggy pond, so a lake-esque pond. 
a small body of water. The philosopher then. (laughs) Yes. Mr. Nagel, Dr. Nagel. Dr. Nagel. What was his problem with me thinking that I know what it's like (laughs) to be a bat? So, yeah, his, his problem is indeed, as much as we may picture echolocation, try it out for ourselves, as much as we may envision the life of a bat soaring through the sky, resting by day upside down on its branches, eating hundreds of pounds of bugs, crunching, crunching, all those imaginative exercises, narrative, emotional, scientific, sonic, all of those sensory experiences, he claims, are just that they're just imaginative experiences and they because the apparatus coming up with those imagined experiences is our mind and our own consciousness it is already so far off the mark it's made by a human brain and thus even our imagined experience of sound is experienced so differently to a bat that we can't even get anywhere close to what it's like to be a bat. Hmm. So if Thomas Nagel writes a paper called What Is It Like to Be a Bat? with a question mark in the title of the paper, his response is, You'll never know. Yeah. And I picture it even spookier and smugger. You'll never know. This was in 1974. Yes. Was this... How did you you run across this particular (laughs) paper? I was assigned to read it in my late 20s when I was enrolled in a fiction writing program. And I was going through a big heartbreak and questioning my experiences and wondering and hoping that this kind of shared love that I thought we had despite misunderstandings was real. Mm. But I was also tweaking quite existentially toward that question and wondering if we had had two totally different versions of the relationship. And then this painfully dry, but relatively short paper landed on my syllabus. And I am nothing if not a goody two-shoes. And so I read it every page of the four pages. (laughs) And I think I read it about twice and realized that this random man from the 70s had just very successfully made the case that, at least how I was interpreting it, not only do we not know what it's like to be a bat, Mm -hmm. we can never know what it's like to be even another human and any 
shared experience or sense of empathy, the sense of knowing what someone else is going through, is a complete illusion, and we are all trapped in the wonky apparatus of our own minds, and we'll never share anything on earth. And, uh, and it bugged me out. It really, it really made me sad. <laughs> was that, as, so this was in a, a graduate school program that you were yes. assigned this? a highly lucrative MFA in fiction career path moment in my life. Was that particular class titled, Don't Bother Writing Characters? <laughs> um, <laughs> no. If it was titled something like Fiction Writing 101, but I, I think the professor's point, and I, and I appreciated it, was to make us think really hard when we were trying to inhabit another mind and what you know writing from the perspective of another person or maybe an animal or i remember that year someone turned in a story from the perspective of a bridge and uh i think it was a chance to get people riled up and we had a lively discussion and just to kind of make us think through the act of imagining other entities' experiences. But I know what you mean. It did have a like, <laughs> okay, so I guess don't try. When you stayed in the cabin by the pond, yes, were there bats there? Yes. There actually were. There were. There were. I saw some bats, um, and there was even a time that a bat came into the house. And I was a little kid, and I saw it. Um, I didn't know what it was at first. It looked like a knot in the pine rafter, but it was actually a little, a little bat up there that my dad then had to remove with a Tupperware by standing on a ladder. Um, but yeah, there were bats all around. How did your dad remove the bat with Tupperware? <laughs> he climbed up a ladder and he brought a Tupperware container, um, perhaps the size that you'd store some spaghetti in, mm -hmm. small amount of spaghetti. And he kind of came over the sleeping bat like a cage at this point, my mother and sisters and I had exited the cabin. Mm -hmm. And about 10 minutes later, we finally heard, ah, girls, Robin. And he had been screaming for help because he had failed to bring the top of a Tupperware up on the ladder with him. And there was an angry bat trapped inside and he was just kind of stuck with his arm up on a ladder with an angry bat. And so then my mother delivered the top to the Tupperware, which he slid over and successfully removed the bat and let it free out into the daytime sky, where contrary to popular belief, it didn't just burst into flames from seeing sunshine. <laughs> How old were you when this happened? I was about seven. Was this the day you realized your father was fallible? No, but it was the first time I had seen a bat. Okay. 
when was the first time that you realized your parents weren't gods, but humans, petty, flawed, and capable of masking deep psychic wounds? I don't know that I ever thought they were gods. I think that they're both um, openly... Uh, unsure about the path forward. They're both a little bit klutzy as well. <laughs> and therefore, um, I think that their, their, their humanity felt always on display. I apologize if that's not a satisfying answer. <laughs> if true, it's a fine answer. Are your kids aware that you're fallible and that most of the adults who they know find your interest in obscure academic papers from the 70s kind of peculiar and possibly off-putting? My children are very young. They are four and one. Mm. And I think that they certainly see the spills and mess of our humanity. But I think we are enjoying this brief glow of, um, of them seeing us as, as like very, they, they see us currently through some pretty rosy goggles, which I just kind of am in this, like, it feels like I'm in a perpetual or I'm in a moment of sunset where I'm trying to enjoy those last rays uh, before before it gets dark. So I'm I think we're in the savoring the moment where we are seen as as far more heroic than we are. Do you think that Thomas Nagel would say that it's possible for a parent? to understand what it is to be that parent's child or that mm -hmm. a child could understand what it's like to be a parent of themselves? He would, he would spit upon the attempt. He would probably, whatever I just said, my long answer about being still sort of rosy through my kid's eyes, he would probably say, you have no idea, lady. That's uh, not even close. That's uh, not even close. And it does remind me, it is, you know, Nagel, he is sobering and he is, he is useful. It reminds me like yesterday I was driving my home son, my home, my son home from daycare. And he said, mama, look at that cool truck. Look at that cool truck. Look at that cool truck. And I was like looking at whether or not I could make a left and whether or not I could make a left. And then I robotically went, oh, cool. And he raged. <laughs> he was like, you didn't look. And he was right. I hadn't. And he was calling me out mm -hmm. on both not sharing the experience he so wanted to experience and me lying. And so may maybe Nagel's right. And maybe there's not even a glow. What do I know? Maybe your son's Thomas Nagel moment <laughs> occurred that day when you did not look at the when truck. I've, I've, yeah. 
perhaps. Mm. What are we to do with Nagel's assertion that we don't know what it's like to be a bat? I think what we can do is ask people. We can ask people what it's like to be them, and we can look closely and try to ask creatures, try to study them for answers. Um, but I think in a certain way that one one place you can go with that paper is to tuck away your confidence that you do know and and therefore just just keep asking and i think that in the end is actually a kind of beautiful charge to walk out with do you know how many species of bats there are in the world no not off the top of my head but i do have a fun fact which is that bats there are the most <laughs> how do i grammatically say this there are the most bats there are of man okay of mammals what <laughs> wait i'm sorry I'm trying, to, I'm trying to use i'm trying to speak english um bats are the most there are the most numbers of species of any mammals for one group, go to bats. There are so many kinds of species. And does that make sense? There's got to be a better way to say that grammatically. I have one. There are 1,100 species of bats worldwide. Wow. Would any given species <clears throat> of bat know what it's like to be another species of bat? According to Nagel, no. Bats make up approximately 25% of all mammal species. How many of the <laughs> 1,100 bat species, not individual bats, can you name? Two. Okay, what are they? And they probably aren't actually species names. Vampire bats yeah. and fruit bats. Those aren't species. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was... I don't know if there's an actual bat named a vampire <laughs> bat, but I'm thinking of the type of bat that turns into a vampire. Right. Yeah. Um, do you know the name for bat poop? It's guano. Yes. Okay. All. Why do you like learning about animals? <laughs> because... They, I think I have two reasons. I think number one is because humanity can feel like a minefield of emotions and expectations and anger and defeat and conflict. And as a conflict-averse human, I find it peaceful to turn to the non-human world as a place to spend my time and increasingly my reporting time, <laughs> my thinking time. 
my physical time and my thinking time. Uh, but two, so number one is um, like escapism. Number two is that I think the closer you look at these non-human neighbors, we still do have so much to understand. And it really, really excites me when we learn something new or see that a rule that we thought always applied to nature might get broken. Um, Because that kind of reminds me we actually don't fully know how everything works. And that is just always a replenishing, hopeful thought to me that, that we don't have it all figured out. How often do you bring up Nagel's paper with the people in your life? And are they glad that you did when you do? <laughs> Too often. Um, I would say certainly quarterly a year. And they are not, they usually respond with this again. Yeah. Um, when I tried to bring it up originally in a professional setting, dabbling in this kind of like, our blue, your blue, might not be my blue, I, I was actually banned from pitching such stories or any stories related to synesthesia in my, in at Radio Lab. <laughs> I received a ban back oh. in my early 20s. So riddles of perception, theorizing, theorizing about perception resulting in feelings is, I feel like people will indulge me when they first meet me and, and then it quickly... Its charms run out quickly. Mm. Mm. I've had that a similar experience with the theory that some dinosaurs were warm-blooded and <gasps> took care of their young rather than just letting them hatch, and that they uh, that they were not reptilian but more mammalian. I heard this theory in a class in college um, well over 30 years ago. <laughs> and I've infuriated my wife by bringing it up repeatedly for most what, of the 28 years of our marriage. What? Uh, why do they think that they may have been more warm-blooded? They would find tracks around the nests which indicated a sort of parental fussiness tending to the <laughs> nest possibly tending to the hatchlings and they found tracks where the larger dinosaur footprints were on the outside and walking and the smaller dinosaur footprints were on the inside as though the adults were forming a shield around the children as they walked. So some scientists speculate fussy tending based on track dispersal? 
Yes. Wow. I took this class a long time ago, and mm -hmm. recently I went back to the, the college where I took that class, where the same professor is still teaching, and in fact, is my daughter is in his class now. Are and you I, waiting with bated breath if she will encounter the same factoid? He stopped teaching the dinosaurs class because he found that young people arriving at the college already knew a lot about dinosaurs. <laughs> but he stands by his theory that a lot of dinosaurs were fussy parents. May I provide you with a similarly minimally based scientific speculation that has haunted, charmed me, yes. and also may connect to our topic at hand. Yes. Okay. <clears throat> According to a study based, I believe published in 2008, I think by either center or venter, it's a little murky, we can look it up later, dinosaurs, based on close analyses of their larynxes may not have made sounds. Mm. Meaning the roars and screeches of, of our imagination in Jurassic Park might have just been an invention, invention and the truth was they all walked around in a Jurassic silence oh. communicating largely through sight and and different little feather like like kind of I think like hood displays and um, kind of sign language mm. much like how birds sometimes also use visual communication I believe there was only one paper with this theory but it has been posited how often do you bring that theory up to people in your life Perhaps more than quarterly. I think I would I would say approximately yeah, I would say over five times a year. Maybe ten times a year. Mm, almost monthly. Almost monthly. I would say monthly. Okay. I would say monthly. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, Lulu, to hear about your ban on certain <laughs> stories. In, at Radio Lab, I want you to know that I am very open to hearing these pitches <laughs> for your stories about the different colors, the different things that we see when we say the, the word blue. And I think that our listeners, those still awake, would like to hear those too. Can you share and those? Gladly, always. Well, the pitch I was most excited about regarding Nagel, bats, and echolocation involves asking Daniel Kish, the man who was blind, who has widely popularized echolocation for people, teaches it, is very deft at it, can, can bike ride, can hike with the help of it. And at one point, I 
the truth was I found out about him while researching Nagel because someone had made the little point, well, look, if, you, if you're saying humans can't know what it means to echolocate, but some humans can, maybe your point is moot. And I was like, some humans can, what? And then I learned about him. So while I was interviewing him, he led me on a hike into the woods and it was just becoming dusk. And while I was actually there to learn about his story and his education and what was known about the neuroscience of what was going on in his brain, thanks to literally decades of echolocating, I fessed up that my way to finding him was my nagel, what is it like to be a bat baggage. And we sat against a rock. We were leaning, we're sitting in the dirt, leaning against a rock. As the sun was setting, vision was draining from my eyes. And we talked about if there was a shared empathy. And we tried to describe the world around us. And he also shared that he had actually been invited to a conference of philosophers to take on what is it like to be a bat as the guy who does echolocation. And I've never listened back to that tape, but my rough pitch was, we talk about this mystery (laughs) in the dark? Question mark in real time. Uh, So that was one. Um, Another one (laughs) is that people who are synesthetes synesthetic synesthetic uh, and can you know see certain colors that are associated with certain numbers they can uh, there have been studies that show that if you were to toss a bunch of numbers like cards with numbers on them out most people couldn't see a pattern but if you are synesthetic synesthetic We'll work on the pronunciation. And like, let's say you associated orange with one, you could see a pattern. So, radio story. Um, You know, in in Radiolab's defense, a lot of these pitches don't have much narrative, um, much to any narrative contained within them. Uh, So much as they are interesting perceptual puzzles, which are hard to resist render and sound um but maybe you could have me back on another day and i could just read you through through some more i would like that very much lulu miller thank you so much for joining us and good night and and i hope you can come back and and talk with us again at bedtime oh goodness i'd love to come back and talk in extensive detail about synesthesia pitches anytime good night Thanks so much, John. Sweet dreams. Okay, sleepyheads. I hope you enjoyed learning about Lulu Miller and bat understanding as much as I did. Something I like to do at the end of my day is kind of make a mental list of things that I experienced or learned over the course of that day. So... If it's okay with you, I'll make a list of takeaways from my conversation with Lulu just right now. 
Well, it's still fresh in my mind. Things I learned. Number one, dolphins have tear ducts. But if they cry, it's not because they wish they had eyelids. Because they do have eyelids. Two, if you're lost in a cave, but you have wintergreen lifesavers, you can use those to make tiny sparks, which probably won't help you much. Three, Tupperware can be used to store bats, although you probably wouldn't ever want to eat, like, egg salad out of that particular piece of Tupperware ever again. Okay, well, I'm going to turn in. I am just spent. Thank you for sleeping with me and my guest, Lulu Miller. Tune in next week for another star-studded trip to dreamland. You can follow Sleeping With Celebrities on Instagram at sleepwcelebs. We're on Twitter and TikTok at sleepwithcelebs. Our email is sleepwithcelebs at maximumfun.org. This program was produced and edited by Laura Swisher. Swish. The theme music was created by the Winterbowers. Sleeping with Celebrities is a production of Maximum Fun and Papa Chick. I'm John Mill. Good night. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.